Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Massive story internationally. The United States and the UK attacked Houthi rebels of Yemen with a missile barrage two days ago. And airstrikes after the Houthis repeated rocket and missile assaults on international commercial shipping in the Red Sea. Canada, it said, played a non-direct role. I have no idea what that could be. Our guest will. What does this lead to? And are we involved in asymmetric global war already? Political ran a piece three days ago. American intel officials warned of risk of Hezbollah attacking the United States. Vice Admiral Mark Norman is our guest. It's almost an honor to speak to the Admiral, former commander of the Royal Canadian Navy and vice chief of the defense staff. Admiral, thank you for joining us. Happy New Year to you. Yeah, and to you and your listeners, Roy. Um, thanks for having me back. It's always great to talk to you. Uh, Admiral, for many Canadians, the Hooties are really an unknown reality other than perhaps being seen as a Yemen-specific rebel force fighting a domestic civil war. But they're obviously more than that. So how seriously do the Houthis deserve attention in the big picture international reality? Well, I, I think uh, given where they're located and the impact that they're having right now on the broader uh, international uh, relations and international economics, we have to take them seriously. I mean, ultimately... Um, you know, this is one of these um, potential spillovers you and I have discussed from the uh, Israel-Hamas uh, conflict that's been ongoing now for a few months. And uh, the ability of this organization, whether whether we want to subscribe them to a particular level or caliber of organization is irrelevant. The fact is that they're interfering with global shipping, and that's having an, a knock-on effect on um economics and and uh, the cost of this hasn't hit home yet and it will um i figure another two three months and the cost of goods which is already um exorbitant for most canadians uh, is going to go up because the cost of moving stuff around the world is being impacted by uh, by these uh, by these rebels this organization and of course they're not acting alone they're supported uh, i suspect by uh, by iran or friends of iran Admiral, uh, Iran is upping its determination to attack Israel and the United States. No question there. Politico exclusively ran a story three days ago, and the headline was, American intel officials warn of risk of Hezbollah attacking the United States. Um, so first the Middle East, then potentially within the United States. That's what Politico says. What causes you concern on that front, Admiral? Iran specifically engaging its proxies potentially to attack the United States. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, whenever um, we hear overt 
threats of uh, attacks against America. I think that causes uh, significant concern. Um, the Americans take these things very seriously, as as you know, and uh, that just causes everything else to get ratcheted up. And and notwithstanding what may or may not happen with respect to those threats, um, the bigger issue here is that the United States is um, being drawn into, and and I will go as far as to suggest distracted, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way. What I mean is that they're 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 so focused on what's going on in the Middle East right now that uh, you know uh, anything else could happen somewhere else. Um, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but it just points to the fact that this this is a big big issue for the U.S. Is it a huge stretch? to suggest that potentially there's asymmetric world war, an asymmetric world war underway now with actors like China, Russia, and Iran engaged on the other side? It's not, it's not a ridiculous notion um, that the problem with uh, the characterization, not you personally, is that we tend to see uh, global conflict uh, through the characterization of the early 20th century and world wars. I think perhaps the the, the more um, uh, 21st century view of this is we're in another form of cold war, um, but it's it's not it's a hot cold war in the sense that these are these are conflicts which are regionally focused, but they are having a massive effect on. Um, the bigger pieces of global security. And so we see, you know, the Ukraine conflict, which hasn't gone away. We're seeing the Middle East um, basically trying to figure out what its new um, reality is going to be uh, here in, in early 2024. And these are all, um, these are all indicators of a, of a bigger conflict, bigger, more tension behind the scenes. And uh, in many respects, um, but the way the Americans behave and the way America's allies behave um, are, are going to, I think, set a bit of a, a tone um, for, for the next several years, for sure. Um, Admiral, you said just before the break that what the United States does and what U.S. allies do as far as responding to the threats and assaults by uh, Iran, or at least Iranian proxies, not Iran directly so far, will perhaps set the stage for the next few years. Well, one of the allies is, of course, this country, and Canada is said to have an indirect role in the airstrikes on the Houthis. Can you expand on that, please, and, and, and just and, and include this country's contributions, what, what we can do with the little we have? Yeah, so the statement is a bit... Um, disingenuous in that it's a it's a mild overstatement at best as to the extent to which Canadians are involved. Yes, Canada, as I understand it, has five staff officers uh, embedded in the U.S.-led uh, primarily naval staff within the Fifth Fleet Organization of U.S. Central Command, which is the um, fighting or operational organization that's overseeing the activities um, in the Middle East right now. 
And so um, I have no idea to what extent one or any of those five officers had anything to do with what went on in the last few days. But, um, yeah, I guess uh, Canada's flag is on the wall uh, amongst, uh, you know, probably half dozen to a dozen other countries, uh, but our contribution is uh, insignificant uh, in, a, in a notable way. And um, that's a function of many things you and I have discussed earlier, and it really comes down to capacity and readiness, and we're just not there. Okay, so the behavior of the United States or the actions taken by the U.S. and American allies setting the stage for what happens over the next number of years in, this, uh, in these conflicts that are taking place. The, the uh, Israel-Hamas uh, war enters its 100th day tomorrow. Right. Yeah. So, you know, there's a couple things playing here. Uh, one of them is, uh, is this idea of um, uh, challenges to U.S. supremacy. And um, th th this is probably something that is, is uh, top of mind uh, for me and, and others. And that is that whether it's a major uh peer, near peer, um, Russia, China, something like that, or whether it's uh, asymmetric powers, as you described in your introduction, um, that are, are basically uh, taking on the United States and trying to demonstrate that the West in general, but really uh, the United States as, as the de facto leader of the West, um, first of all, are, are, they're not invincible, um, and second of all, they are uh, representative of um, ideas, ideology, values that are inconsistent with the, the wishes of countries like Iran and, and organizations like Hamas and the Houthis in Yemen and these types of things. And this is all, um, you know, to be honest, it, it, it should be of concern. Um, and uh, threats directly against the United States are never a good thing. And, uh, and meanwhile, you know, there's... There's other concerns on the other side of the world, um, which aren't hot at the moment, but they could be uh, easily within the next few years. So one of the other concerns, which was the number one concern until recently, is Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Where does that fit now, Admiral Norman? And the, uh, the Ukrainians are still waiting for the F-16 fighter planes. Uh, wh wh where does that conflict fit? It seems to have escaped the favor of many, uh, Germany now, un, perhaps unusually, seems to be the, uh, the, the most vocal country supporting Ukraine in, in Europe. Yeah, so, I mean, the Ukrainian situation has gone away. It's just been overshadowed by more recent events. Um, and the crisis uh, that we've discussed now for the better part of two years is, is ongoing. And arguably, it's getting worse. Um, and, you know, this, this plays right into Russia's long game. That they have the depth, they have the capacity, they have the bench strength to, to, to run this out. Um, and they know that the West is fickle and doesn't have the degree of strategic patience that uh, countries like Russia or China or others have um, for seeing these things through. So, um, you know, thankfully, there are still some, some, some loud uh, supporters of Ukraine, but you can see the, the, the support to Ukraine wavering a little. Um, and this is all playing out 
as a backdrop to what's playing out in the Middle East. And yeah. I realize that for a lot of people, that there isn't any obvious connection. Um, and I'm not suggesting that the forces themselves are connected, but that there is a common thread here. And the common thread is, um, to put it bluntly, um, uh, an underlying anti-American sentiment, and by extension, that is an anti-Western sentiment, okay. um, which implicates Canada as well. As Global News uh, told us earlier in the week, Ottawa was warned about an impact of high immigration on housing, and they were warned of that in 2022. The uh, deputy minister was warned that housing construction had not kept up with the pace of population growth. So um, a huge issue and one that Canadians are very much engaged in. Three months ago, Canadians by strong majority, 75%, told Leger Marketing in a national poll that higher immigration numbers of the federal government are causing housing and health care crisis to become worse. Also had concerns about the impact on education. Christian Bork is the executive vice president of Leger, and he joins us on the Roy Green Show. Christian, good to talk to you again. Hi, Roy. So 75% of Canadians, and I said earlier, it's hard to get 75% of Canadians to agree today is Saturday, but 75% of Canadians say the Liberals' dramatic increase in immigration numbers is responsible for impacting, or part of, partly responsible for impacting the housing and healthcare crisis across Canada. Can you break that down a bit for us, please? Yeah, we've asked the same question now for, for about 15 years, which is, should Canada welcome more, the same amount or fewer immigrants? And what we've seen is a dramatic change over the past 18 months. Um, and that's all tied to the affordability crisis we're all going through, and specifically the, the housing crisis that we're living through. Between March 2022 and November of 2023, uh, there's a plus nine in the column of Canadians who say we should welcome fewer immigrants. Prior to the pandemic, it, we used to have about a, a third of Canadians saying we should welcome more immigrants, half of Canadians somewhere in the middle saying the same amount, and about a quarter saying fewer. Now, this is all reversed. We now today have 48% of Canadians who say we should welcome fewer immigrants, 43% the same amount, and only 9% say we should welcome more. All of that is all practically all due to the affordability crisis Canadians are living through. And the 63% of Canadians who told you they have concerns about the impact on education in Canada by the volume of newcomers, same reason? Oh, yeah. 63% is, is uh, again, like you mentioned, it's hard to get a consensus across the country and across political lines on these things. And when you get two out of three Canadians saying it's putting pressure on our education system, three quarters, it's putting question, uh, uh, pressure on our healthcare system. Um, and, and even when we ask Canadians, uh, are they contributing directly to the affordability crisis? Even there, 58% of Canadians say yes. So it, while they still agree that, that immigration is having a positive impact on keeping our population numbers up, on ensuring that we sort of limit the impact of labor shortages, um, now we're seeing a whole new series of concerns regarding immigration that we were not seeing prior to the pandemic and certainly prior to the, uh, the affordability crisis. So as you just said, about three-fourths of Canadians, there's another 75%, say higher immigration contributes to cultural diversity in this country, and over 60%, in your polling, see younger immigrants contributing to the economic strength of Canada <laughs> while supporting old, the, the old generation 
uh, at the a, same time. Uh, it's as if the, the, the heart is saying, we want to be an open, diverse, welcoming country like we've always been. But then you look down at your pocketbook and you're saying, is it still making sense at the current levels that we are welcoming into the country? So that contradiction did not exist prior to just a few years ago. Um, and it used to be some time, you would have to go back to 2018, 2019, where the, the province where the percentage of Canadians saying we should welcome fewer immigrants was the highest in Quebec because it was all tied to the survival of the French language. But today, Quebec is the lowest province with BC, and it's all across the country. Uh, again, they're pretty much the same levels of Canadians who are saying, whoa, I think we're welcoming too many. It's putting a strain on our local economy. Now, it's not unusual for people to look at their wallets, their bank accounts, their balances, right? I mean, if I don't have enough money to feed and house my family, I'm going to look for a reason why. First place I'll look is the government and its policies, and then I'll tell you what I think. Yeah. Well, it used to be, you remember uh, Bush's advisor saying uh, saying it's the economy, stupid. Right. But when you look at the trend in the, U the uh, United States and in Canada, it's not the economy anymore, as in sort of worried about job losses or unemployment. It's actually, it's 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 my wallet book, stupid. Um, and, and I think if you look at the political polling uh, done in, in Canada and the States, they're basically looking to their governments and saying, you know, Fix something or fix this, because right now it's my pocketbook that's hurting, not the overall economy of Canada. Christian, is, is any demo in this country, any demographic in Canada, more outspoken on immigration nationally than, than regionally? No, regionally, no real differences. Age-wise, again, very little differences. We see more different uh, uh, differences along the political divide. So those who would support uh, the Conservative Party of Canada or the PPC tend to be more favorable to lowering uh, uh, immigration levels. And the more you tend to be to the left, then the more you tend to say we should welcome more or at least the same amount of, of immigrants. So it's more along political lines that we see uh, uh, differences. We're not seeing it. Uh, quite that much or quite the way we used to along other sociodemographics um, as well. Even today, more women than men, it used to be the opposite, say we should welcome fewer immigrants. But again, when you're looking at the, the, the household budget uh, of Canadians, uh, who's looking after every cent and every dollar in there? It's usually uh, uh, um, the woman in, in, in the household. So women are saying, in greater force now that we should lower immigration levels. That's very interesting. So yeah. when the election is called, and uh, many Canadians want an election this year, the latest is going to be the fall of next year, how much of an issue do you foresee immigration being as far as uh, who who win Parliament? Yeah, well, it's going to, don't listen to whatever I've said for the past 25 years, because I've always said you don't win or lose an election on immigration, nor do you win or lose an election on foreign policy. Uh, this time around, though, uh, probably may be the first time where immigration will actually be one of those ballot box issues that, that the, uh, the current government uh, will have to deal with. And right now, they're not on the positive end uh, of that debate. The situation within Canada's healthcare system, particularly ERs, emergency rooms, not good now. Really, not good now. The Canadian Medical Association released this statement. Anyway, here, here's the headline of the one-page statement they issued this week: Patients 
providers suffer as ERs are overwhelmed yet again. Wait times up to 20 hours are being experienced. And then I went back and I found uh, the Canadian Medical Association Journal, September 25 of last year, there was an article headlined, Without more acute care beds, hospitals are on their own to grapple with emergency department crises. And that's spelled C-R-I-S-E-S, as in multiples. Dr. Kathleen Ross is the president of the Canadian Medical Association, and she's back with us. Dr. Ross, thank you for, for, for taking the time. Happy to be here. So the fact the CMA issued this one-page release on the state of ERs in Canada speaks volumes to me. But Dr. Bross, uh, please, the perspective for Canadians who view emergency departments at their hospitals as the refuge, perhaps, of last meaningful resort when they or their loved ones are in health distress, particularly the six million or so who have no family doctor. Oh, it is uh, it's deeply concerning, and it certainly highlights just how fragile our healthcare system um, has become. And you know, these are not new problems, as you've said, and uh, and you pointed out the number of acute care beds. Uh, you know, back in the 1990s, when I first started practice, we made significant cuts to the number of hospital beds, and it really wasn't supported by an increase in resources in community care. So we have both an inflow into the emergency department challenge and an outflow. Uh, for admitted patients uh, in the emergency department. And part of that's uh, an inadequate number of beds for the surge we're facing right now. And part of it's not having those alternate levels of care beds, you know, long-term care, rehabilitation. Uh, and then on the inflow side, with patients not having access to primary care, and we know that, you know, one in five Canadians don't have a primary care provider. And, and of those who do, you know, 40% or more will tell you it's difficult to access their primary care, care provider in a, in a decent time. So we wind up with uh, with chronic conditions that aren't managed appropriately, uh, winding up in eMERGE and, and people uh, not having anywhere else to go. Yeah. We talked about immigration in the last hour and 75% of Canadians told Leger that their concern about the current immigration numbers is that it will negatively affect health care, education as well, and housing. So we took some phone calls, Dr. Ross, and the majority of our callers wanted to talk about the state of health care in Canada. They felt certainly that immigration numbers were too high given the, uh, the infrastructure available, but they wanted to talk about their health care experiences. And that speaks volumes to me, and after I speak with you, I'm going to take more calls on, on experiences with uh, emergency rooms. But I'm looking at, at, the, at, at my clock here in the studio, and I'm on Eastern Time. You're on Pacific time. We have different time zones in this country. People listen to us all over the country. So if I look to look at my time, it's 4.11 now. So I walk into an ER and I've got something wrong with me. I know there's something wrong with me. And I need help. The potential is there that I will have to wait until noon tomorrow to be seen. That's not reassuring. That's scary. Yeah, certainly not. Yeah, no, and I agree with you. And, and I think Canadians are really losing patience. It is taking us too long to come forward with, uh, with solutions. And we know our main challenges are, are you know, work, worker retention alongside an inadequate number of workers in training and, and uh, you know, and not fully integrating internationally trained graduates as yet. Uh, 
these are all these are all challenges. But no matter how many more care providers we put in the system, if we're not able to retain them because working conditions are overwhelmed and you have lack of resources when you show up to work to meet the needs of the patient that's in front of you, uh, it, it's really difficult to retain people. Uh, and we're seeing burnout and, uh, and resigning uh, from positions across the country. Which only exacerbates the situation. Oh, absolutely makes it uh, makes it worse. So we know we need to we need to to shore up the system as it exists right now for sure, and that sustainable healthcare funding uh, is, is important. But we also need to set clear targets to enhance uh, patient access. Looking at our foundation, our front door of healthcare in primary care. Looking at what we need to do to support our emergency departments, and then on the other side, looking at shoring up community services. Uh, whether that's long-term care beds, rehabilitation beds, hospital at home, so we can treat some of these conditions in the home rather than having a, a bed uh, occupied in the emerge or elsewhere. All parts of the solutions. Dr. Ross, I'm not going to tell you anything you don't know. But I had the lead doctor of a group of emergency rooms in Hamilton hospitals tell me that patients were dying because they couldn't get inside an emergency room at the hospital nearest their home or location of distress. That was in the 1990s, when there were already hospital bypass instructions for ambulance crews because ERs then couldn't handle any more patients, and it was those paramedic ambulance crews who were left caring for patients who couldn't be admitted to the ER while the ambulance was parked outside. Is it still yes. is it still that bad? It is not a new problem, and uh, and unfortunately, these these pressures keep mounting. And and the approach in healthcare management often, uh, we know, is the emerges the canary uh, in the coal mine is to go to find a, a more resilient canary. Uh, but I think time is now to really have a, a good hard look at the coal mine. We need to improve the uh, the working conditions and the ability for patients to access care close to home. Where and when, when, where and when they need it, and that means looking at community resources, including access to primary care. We need to look at the at the ability for us to move patients for alternate level of care out of the hospital and leave space, and then we need to support Canadians in in being their best healthy self, getting their vaccinations like flu or COVID when they're when they're available, uh, looking at managing your chronic diseases to the optimum way, and uh, and if we all work in the same direction. Uh, and collaborate across jurisdictions, this can happen. Yeah, taking care of your own health as best you can to the maximum of your potential is a critical component in the delivery of healthcare. We understand that. Let me ask you, I've spoken with you now, I think three times, in your, so far, it's still a brief tenure, you have a long way to go, in your time as president of the CMA. I've spoken to your predecessors for 30 years and I hear many of the same positions, perhaps modified slightly, over that time. So I'm asking you, Dr. Ross, who's listening? Who's actually listening and absorbing what the Canadian doctors are saying, identifying as the problem in delivering the health care Canadians pay so, so many dollars for, huge amounts of money going to health care? Who listens to you? 
So I think lots of people listen. It's just that the healthcare system is a behemoth of a machine. Uh, and we've seen these excellent works in, in silos across the country. I like to call them cylinders of excellence. But now is the time to break down silos, to actually set some targets, understand uh, what we need to deliver in the way of services before we say who uh, and where. So what do we need? Then start talking about who and where. Start ensuring that we have the right uh, number of people, the right number of places to place patients. Uh, and ensure that those dollars are are there to uh, to improve health care. I've been at this for 30 years. I've been having many of these same conversations for 30 years. I think what's changed this time is the urgency that the Canadian population at large feels now. We know we cannot continue doing more of the same. We need to modernize how we deliver our health care, and that may mean changing where we deliver services, how we talk uh, to patients back and forth, leveraging technology where that's appropriate. All of these things are on the, um, on the list to do. Underlying all of this is the need for collaboration across all jurisdictions in the country, across all sites of care in the country, across all providers in the country. We need Canadians to keep speaking up to their political leadership, keep their foot on the gas. We need to address this urgent challenge in our healthcare system before it falls apart altogether. Yeah. So here's my question. Looking at the headline of your statement, patients, providers, patients and providers suffer as ERs are overwhelmed yet again, 20 hour waits. If the appropriate things are not done, if the appropriate actions are not taken, if what you've just shared with us is not undertaken and put in place, how long can, th- can this hold out? How long until we are in a situation where it's just not there anymore? Yeah, so it's, it's absolutely challenging to predict how long we can hang on. I mean, we're, we're relying on the resilience of, uh, of humans uh, oftentimes. But there, there, I do have hope as I head into 2024. We've seen you know, investment of an unprecedented nature in healthcare this past year, I'm, uh, I'm encouraging um, all jurisdictions across Canada to sign those bilateral agreements with the federal government to get those additional dollars out the door. Uh, and those agreements were, were, you know, to tailor and taper to the needs of specific populations and geography, but really centered around those four shared health priorities. And that's access to family health services, particularly rural and remote, supporting healthcare workers, reducing backlogs increasing access to mental health and substance use, and really modernizing how we gather and use healthcare data and digital tools. These are all part of our, uh, our work ahead, but there's dollars on the table that are as yet unclaimed in many jurisdictions. So many fond memories and, and uh, thoughts that I you know, think about the Patriots and, and uh, always be a Patriot. I look forward to coming back here. Bill Belichick. Coach of the New England Patriots, six Super Bowls with Tom Brady at quarterback. Now he's moving on. Where? Atlanta, maybe? That'd be my guess. But my guests know a lot more about this than I do. Although I don't really believe that. I just said it because it's the right thing to say. As the host, I don't think they know anything more about sports than I do. Not a chance. Not even close. There's also Mike Vrabel of the Tennessee Titans removed uh, from, from his job. And the Patriots reportedly hired 37-year-old Gerard Mayo, former linebacker, with the team. Okay, NFL playoffs begin today. 
Difficult to pick winners, particularly with brutally cold temps. Well, in Kansas City, the Buffalo game, Bills and Steelers, has been postponed until Monday because of a massive storm in uh, western New York. Let's say hello to my friends and and broadcast colleagues on Chorus Radio. Greg Brady, host of Toronto Today on AM640 in Toronto, uh, broadcasts the Super Bowl play-by-play for the BBC in the UK. Okay, Greg, I wave the white flag. You know a lot more about sports than I do. It, it, seven seven minutes from now, you'll be saying otherwise, Roy. You Not always a say chance. the right thing. Not a we'll chance. We'll see where this goes. Okay. Greg Mackling, co-host of The Morning Show on 680 CJOB in Winnipeg, hosts the Blue Bombers Halftime Show and co-host of the Blue Bombers Podcast. Still still hurting a bit after the Grey Cup, Greg? Well, you know, you, you go to four straight Grey Cups and that's, you know, that pain is tempered somewhat, but yeah, it still hurts. I, I've yet to to watch a replay of the game. So if that tells you anything, uh, it probably speaks to the fact that I, I may never, ever watch that game again. So, yeah, it hurts a little bit. I thought you uh, wanted to talk about the first place in the National Hockey League Jets today. I guess I got the wrong <laughs> You've got the wrong show, but congratulations. That is one <laughs> one heck of a hockey team. We're, uh, we're, we're, we're having a little bit of fun in Winnipeg right now. So you should. Thing. And you're having fun with the weather. I just received a text from one of our listeners from CJOB. Lauren texted to 877-399-9898 uh, about the temperature. I was talking earlier about the cold in Western Canada. She writes, this is normal, Winnipeg, Manitoba. Today is just another winter day for us. Minus 35. Winds are 25 or 29 kilometers an hour. Buckle up, bundle up, and go for a walk. Yeah, piece of cake, and just tune in to that, that Chiefs-Dolphins game tonight, and that's basically what they're getting in KC right now. That's what we've got in Winnipeg, and so you're going to see lots of conversation about the weather. I cannot believe they moved that, that Bills-Steelers game. That, that must be quite the storm that's coming to Buffalo, but this is you know sort of validation for those of us in Canada in cities that don't have dome stadiums, and we talk about the Great Cup not being played inside. And hey, this is what football's all about. Well, I know Greg has strong thoughts on this. I know the Bills Mafia, Greg, Greg, Greg Brady, are not going to be too happy about this because they want to go shirtless in any kind of weather. But uh, let's talk about this postponement. The governor of New York making the call. Yeah, and that's that may be the most unprecedented scenario to me. Is an elected official in essence saying. Um, we're going to we're going to keep the roads safe. There's a travel ban. Now, we remember what these were like, but they were for the most part in 2020, 2021, uh, when the concept was hey, we're trying to reduce the spread of COVID. This is something completely different. But I think that sort of opened the door a crack to get used to the idea. There's always going to be highways closed, uh, Roy and Greg. But I think this is rather unprecedented that you've got a, a government official Attempting to do the right thing. I will give you this. And Roy, I know you're, you know, physically like, like you and I are, are close to that Buffalo situation. 47 people lost their lives in snowstorm accidents last year um, over Christmas. They had a really bad 72 hour run. So I don't doubt that that sort of hangs over um, the, the, the recency bias of this decision here. And they're going to move the game to Monday at 4.30, and, and Monday, by the way, is Martin Luther King Day, so it is a holiday. I, I, I was questioning it dramatically as to the, you're going to put more chaos and disorder on the roads on a work day and a school day, but it is a national holiday for them. I would just make the point, 
what is it, 20%, 21% of Canadians are Buffalo are, are the Buffalo Bills attendees uh, game in, game out during the regular season. So there's going to be a lot of calls to um, bosses happening over the next day or two <laughs> in uh, Fort Erie and Burlington and all over the GTA saying, I'm not making it in Monday or I'm leaving at noon. Uh, it's, it's called the Bills Flu. <laughs> That's what it's called. The Bills Flu. Greg Mackling, what do you make? I mean, over here you live in Winnipeg. Probably the coldest spot on, in the world at times. What do Winnipegers? What would Winnipegers say at, at a postponement? I mean, looking at the weather conditions and the road closures, that's one thing. But if it was weather, just cold, how would Winnipegers respond to a, a postponement? 1991 Grey Cup. That's how you'd respond to it. Just uh, go to the tape. <laughs> Sat in the south end stand. I think it was about minus 24 by the time the game got finished. And there was wind on top of that. It was not a classic. Obviously, that's the game that's famous for uh, a, a fan throwing a, a beer in the direction of Rocket Ismail on a kickoff return for a touchdown. It was cold. But, you know, people talk about, you know, the idea of playing in cold weather. Matt Dunnigan was the quarterback of record for the Argonauts in that game. And guess who he signed with the very next season? Signed up to become a Blue Bomber and to play in Winnipeg. So, you know, football players are a different breed. And I think some of them are absolutely salivating at the prospect of standing across from someone who's almost too cold uh, that they don't want to get hit. The Blue Bombers always talk about never cold enough. We're going to find out just how... Uh, just how much metal some of these NFL players have in a couple and, of and Roy And Roy and Greg, think tonight. You've got the Miami Dolphins starting quarterback who doesn't check any of these boxes. He was born in Hawaii. That's not good, given that it's going to be about minus 28 Celsius wind chill at Arrowhead Stadium tonight. Um, and he's born in Miami, plays his college football in, uh, in, in Mobile, Alabama for Nick Saban. Mm-hmm. Gets drafted by the Miami Dolphins. So Hawaii, Miami, Alabama doesn't really connect with a minus 28 wind chill, which no. is what it's going to be at 8 o'clock tonight. This will be the coldest weather game the Dolphins have ever played. And they've had to play in Buffalo against Jim Kelly and those great Bills teams a few times where they're, they're utterly outmanned just from Mother Nature alone. You know, there's going to be a lot of uh, what, what euphemistically called pile inspectors at <laughs> During the game tonight, so when if there's a fumble and and there's three or four guys, five six guys diving for the ball, if you look at the periphery, there's always guys who are just standing there looking, and they're known as the pile inspectors. I think there'll be a lot of them tonight. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What are your thoughts on uh, Belichick, Pete Carroll, Mike Rabel, essentially being well? They were dumped by the Patriots, the Seahawks, and the Titans. What do you think of that, and where's it going, uh, Mr. Mackling? Your thoughts first, please. Well, I'm a huge Pete Carroll fan. I think what he did for football in Seattle, I, I spent a lot of time in, in Calgary in my lifetime and been to several Seahawks games over the years. And I think, he, you know, Pete Carroll, just one of the great characters in the game. I think when we spoke in the NFL preview back in the summer, Roy, we, we discussed the fact that that guy could still chuck a football 50 yards down the field. A great athlete, a great motivator, Unfortunately, part of his legacy is going to be out coaching himself in that Super Bowl against in, against New England when they didn't hand the ball to Marshawn Lynch uh, on the goal line. And of course, Belichick. What can you say? My goodness, twenty four seasons, nine appearances in the Super Bowl, six wins. But Brady, do you think he's going to have a little bit of a like? Is there that shadow about you know some of the 
the different quote-unquote cheating scandals over the years with the videotape and, and that sort of thing? Do you, th- do you think that taints his legacy at all? Not, not sure on that one, but I, but I, but it's a fair, it's a fair question. What I do think, guys, is, and, and this kind of as clearly, there's been there's some great uh, Boston-based reporters who have kind of said how embarrassed owner Robert Kraft was because for a long time Belichick kept saying we need a contingency plan for Tom Brady. He can't get it done anymore, and he might have been sort of stuck in that in in a two three week span where Tom Brady didn't play well. All of a sudden, he racks up a few more Super Bowls. Then there's one year he doesn't get it, and they say, you know what? Now we do officially have to move on from him. What does he do? We all know this. He goes to Tampa Bay, plays for the Buccaneers, gets them to a Super Bowl. Um, and that was really a lot of egg on the face of, of Bill Belichick. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a weird one because people have debated, Roy, the importance of the coach versus the player. We always do that in sports, even the great Scotty Bowman. Scotty Bowman had some pretty amazing teams. I don't know. Scotty Bowman never won a Stanley Cup with a, with a bunch of also rants. He sure didn't in Montreal, Detroit, or Pittsburgh. But I bring that up to note that Robert Kraft never, I don't know if he quite forgave the idea that he got to, had to witness Tom Brady winning the Super Bowl in another uniform, and New England's quarterbacking has been certainly substandard since then. It's not like you were trading, um, moving off a really good one and, and getting a similarly good one. It's not You're not going Brett Favre to Aaron Rodgers here or anything like that. Um, so I, I think it was probably time. The great question would be, does Bill Belichick say enough's enough? He's still behind George Hallis and Don Shula for all-time coaching wins. And anybody that's sort of read the tea leaves knows he wants desperately to break that record. He'd have to coach about two and a half more years to get that record and be the all-time winningest coach. It's surprising he isn't. Now, I think we agree. Probably no head coach is going to win seven Super Bowls again. He won a couple as defensive coordinator with the Giants as well, or six, I should say, in New England, and a couple in New York with Bill Parcells, but uh, to be determined. So, so where do you think, uh, guys? Where, where will they end up? Let's say Belichick and Pete Carroll both wind up as head coaches again. I've heard it said that Pete Carroll will probably be in uh, L.A. with the Chargers. Belichick may be in Atlanta. Vrabel will be somewhere, no doubt. But where do you think they'll... uh, Let me start with you, Greg Brady. Where where, where do you see them going? I know what you're saying about Pete Carroll. If I'm the Chargers and I have a young quarterback with a bullet arm like uh, uh, Justin Herbert, that's where I want to send Bill Belichick. Uh, I, I, if I'm him, I'm calling the Chargers. Now, let me add another name to the equation. So I don't. The Chargers are, are open. Doesn't seem like he's interested in the Titans. I'm not. I think Atlanta feels like they're in a bit of a perpetual rebuild right now. I think it's still possible Jim Harbaugh leaves the University of Michigan, who just won the NCAA championship, goes back to California, where he had great success with the 49ers, and is also his first coaching job was at San Diego State. And though San Diego, the Chargers aren't in San Diego anymore, it's just down the road, up the road in Los Angeles. Jim Harbaugh with the L.A. Chargers strikes me as the fit because we just saw, obviously, the Washington coach who coached in that national championship game, uh, Greg, go right to Alabama. So this carousel is in full blast right now. Anything could happen over the next few days. And Jim Harbaugh yeah, he, was, was a quarterback himself. Yeah, yeah good one. I think, yeah. yeah, he was great. And like, uh, like Brady said, what he did with San Francisco, absolutely uh, tremendous. I think he's sort of itching to get away from some of the controversy in Michigan as well. And a lot of the NFL stuff I've been listening to and, and reading the last couple of days points to Harbaugh going to the Chargers. Uh, Belichick can go where he wants. I'm not a huge fan of his, so I really don't care where he ends up. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, not a huge fan, I'm not a huge fan of Belichick's either. It's, it's nothing personal. I, I, no. just, I just don't like his demeanor. 
No, I mean, part of your, I think part of your job when you're in National Football League is to, to help sell the game on different levels. And the, and the documentary about the two Bills, Purcells and Belichick is pretty good. You get to see a little bit more of his personality, but I never dug the way he treated the media. And that's regardless of, of what I do for a living or not. It's like, come on, man, give us something. I see that uh, at Greg Brady T.O., Tweeted our forefathers and foremothers. <laughs> <laughs> and if you ask Justin Trudeau, it would be four people. Must, is it not, and that's F O R, is it F O R E, not F O U R? Must be shaking their heads in shame for anyone who attended the Chargers Bengals game in January 1982. This is about the postponement. A uh, minus 26 Celsius uh, kickoff time between the Bengals and the yeah, Chargers in January. Yeah. Of 82. And that Super Bowl that year was Joe Montana's first. And the Bengals, you can imagine, the Chargers walked into Cincinnati, had no idea what to do in minus. The, the football was like a rock. And they didn't have heaters on the sidelines back then. I don't think they had a carbon tax, Roy, in 82, but they didn't have heaters on the sidelines. I'm trying to work that in. <laughs> You're a funny man. You're a funny man. Yeah. It's funny you mention that game because I got in my notes here to make sure that I remind people about that game because the Dolphins <laughs> going into KC tonight. It's similar to Air Coriel back in, mm-hmm. in that 81, well, played in 82, the 81 season. You know, they just couldn't do anything. Minus 59, I think, was the wind chill and what they call the ice bowl and, or the freezer bowl. And it's just, oh, my gosh. Yeah, they probably are not. Dan Fouts and company, probably not happy to see. You postpone this game coming up tomorrow. Uh, can we go back in time and replay that game? Because... Uh, Chargers, 49ers would have been quite the Super Bowl in Detroit that year. Yeah, it's just, it really is something when you, I mean, I don't want to go outside for a minute when it's that cold, let alone, you know, rolling up your sleeves, like nothing on your sleeves, or just going to show how tough I am. It it doesn't matter that my left arm will fall off at halftime. I'm I'm a tough guy. I'm going to go out and play. Good for them, actually. And Roy, we can't, we can't afford Taylor Swift getting frostbite. Um, and and postponing <laughs> the six uh, shows coming to Toronto. Sorry for uh, yeah, Greg that, yeah. that she's not uh, doing a double dip in Winnipeg. But these shows are cr- Toronto's economy. Roy, need I remind you? We, we, like we, we need something to stimulate it. And six Taylor Swift shows will do that. We can't afford this this continental treasure. Well, wait a minute. Frostbite. Hold, hold on. Stimulate the economy of Toronto, Greg. Boyfriend play tight end tonight. We can't stim- have it. Stim- Stimulate the, the Toronto economy, who doesn't the, uh, the tax increase uh, <laughs> expected? The property tax increase going to do that? Uh, hey, uh, six, six Taylor Swift shows will be the equivalent of, yeah. uh, of a lot, thousands of land transfer tax payments. Okay, guys, we have about a minute. Um, who's going to be in the Super Bowl? L- I think it's LV Triple I. I don't know. Who will be in the Super Bowl and who's going to win it? Quick prediction. Mr. Mackley, you first. Cowboys, Ravens. And? Cowboys. Ah, uh, you're my man. No, and I'm not sucking up. This is the year. This is the year for the Cowboys. Been waiting right. too long for this. Okay, Mr. Brady. I don't love Dak Prescott in huge games, and neither do you two. Um, so no. I need to believe it to see it. I'm calling this as a Bills 49ers Super Bowl, and I'm not a diehard Bills fan. I grew up a Miami fan, so... Jim Kelly tortured me. I think Buffalo wins this year. I do. I think they're. I think the two best teams are in the AFC: Buffalo and Baltimore. I think San Francisco's okay, but Bills over Niners, Roy and Greg. Let's find out in a few weeks from now. I just want to uh, just just in closing play the 
best play-by-play, uh, 29 seconds of play-by-play in the history of the NFL. Oh, there's a cat. A black cat has taken the field. A black cat is running from the 20 to the near side, the 10. From the 39 in Dallas, here's a short throw down the middle, caught by Ingram. Caught at the 35, went to the 30. Now the cat running the other way, and so is Ingram at the 30 to the 25, to the 24-yard line of the Dallas Cowboys. It's a catch run of 15. Now the cat has stopped at the 50. Now he's at the 5. He's Who brought walking. the cat? He's walking to the 3. He's at the 2. <laughs> And the cat is in the CDW red zone. CDW people who get it now. A policeman, a state trooper has come on the field. And the cat runs into the end zone. There you go. Kevin Harland with the cat call at the Giants-Cowboys game. Greg and Greg, thank you so much. Great talking to you. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.